Well, praise the Lord. Amen. He is holy, 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 and it's a joy to worship him. So let's continue our worship now by turning to the 19th chapter, excuse me, the 18th chapter of the book of Acts. We're going to continue our expositional verse-by-verse study in the book of Acts, and we're going to be looking at uh, verses 24 all the way through 19 verses 1 through 7. So if you'd turn there, I got a little bit of an echo here, Jake. Thank you, brother. 18, Acts chapter 18, verses 24 through 19, 1 through 7. If you could stand with me for the reading of God's word. This is God's word. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but... When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he had arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Paul was, uh, excuse me, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, "Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed?" And they said, "No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit." And he said, "Into what then were you baptized?" And they said, "Into John's baptism." And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. They began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. We're just going to dive right in here as we pick up where we left off last week when Paul told the Jews at Ephesus, I will return if God wills. Here was a man who was in complete submission to, under complete subjection to, the will of his sovereign Lord as to where he would or would not stay and where he would or would not go. We know that his destination, his path was predetermined. But Luke tells us Paul was faithful to then walk on that path. I will do this, he says. I will come back. I will. If God wills, he makes my path straight and then gives me the strength to walk on that path. On our text today, we see Paul come back. We will see that it is actually, it was in the will of God for him to return to this great city in Asia Minor, this beautiful, elegant, sophisticated port city, which was really in its glory during Paul's time. This city was clean, it was uh, sanitary, it was pleasing to the eyes from the outside anyhow. It was a city that had far-reaching influence throughout the whole Roman Empire. It had large, beautiful buildings. It had a stadium, which I think someone said had uh, the ability to seat 25,000 people, which was huge during that time. Uh, They had a theater, which kept people entertained. And they had shrines and temples, which would keep the people pious. One temple in particular, thought to be one of the wonders of the ancient world, and that was the temple of Artemis, or Diana, which is almost like the exact length and width of a football field, but what really made it stand out was the 127 Ionic-style columns, which 
stood approximately 60 feet in height, and it was all made of marble. It was all marble. Can you imagine that? In fact, one commentator said the entire city of Ephesus was a city built of marble. Marble marble paved streets. Uh, It lined the foundation. It it supported the monuments. It channeled rainwater into the sea. Even the public toilets were constructed from polished marble. Sounds kind of nice. Quote, the city gleamed with white iridescence as if to say to the world, this city will shine forever. And yet, just like everything else this world has to offer, uh, the once magnificent wonder of this city is now nothing more than a pile of rubble. This wonder of the ancient world now sits in ruins. But for our text this morning, during this time, This place, this apostle, this narrative account takes place in a city that is stunning to say the least. So I want you to try to put yourselves there. As Paul says, I will come back, God willing. He then goes over to Caesarea. He lands at Caesarea, verse 22 says. And remember, he goes up and greets the church. Then he goes back down to Antioch, which indicates, even though Luke doesn't say it, he doesn't mention it by name, this was a trip to Jerusalem. And notice with me, when we look at verse 23 in Acts 18, Luke says, after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Interestingly, really amazingly, in that single verse there, and then picking back up in chapter 19, verse 1, we're talking about thousands of miles traveled, okay? Months and months of laboring for the gospel, suffering for the gospel, seeing people transformed by the gospel, strengthening all true believers in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's really easy for us to read this and say, oh yeah, he went to Caesarea, then Jerusalem, then Jerusalem to Antioch, then Antioch through Galatia and Phrygia, then he'll come back to Ephesus a few verses later, But don't forget, this is where epistles were being formed. This was an actual man who walked to all of these cities. Maybe he had a horse. I don't know that. Maybe not, though. Uh, Very likely, he walked all over the Roman Empire as a Jew, proclaiming the Jewish Messiah that a good number of his own people rejected wholeheartedly. It puts the epistles of Paul and these uh, other men in a different perspective when you just stop and think about it. Man, that's thousands of miles contained in that one little verse there. Thousands of miles. How how much went on that we have no idea about? How, How many interactions and encounters did he have with people on these journeys? What were these encounters like? It's pretty incredible to think about. But don't think about it too long. We know what God wants us to know. And we know who God wants us to know. Like this young man in verse 24, Luke introduces him as a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, who Luke says came to Ephesus. So again, here we are in this beautifully constructed marble city, and we meet this man, Apollos, who's uh, by the way, Luke's description is just as captivating. This, this man is just as captivating as the city. First of all, his name was Apollos, which means the destroyer. Now ask any boy under the age of 12, and they'll tell you that would be a sweet name to have. The destroyer comes to Ephesus. That should have been the title today of this sermon. What a blown opportunity Let's pretend that the title of this sermon is The Destroyer Comes to Ephesus. Jake, when we put this on the website, (laughs) let's put The Destroyer Comes to Ephesus. Thanks, brother. What a great name. Second, he was a Jew, okay? But like, uh, and like Paul, he was a Roman citizen. He was born in Alexandria. Now, Alexandria was a great city in itself, another port city, but down in Egypt, which excelled in culture and wisdom. Athens had their philosophy, their intellectualism, but Alexandria had the academia. They were the brains. They were the scholars. Uh, Multiple sources say it was 
uh, home to the finest library in all of the world, which housed over 500,000 volumes. 500,000 scrolls. That seems like a reach, but that's what they say. Interestingly, though, it also became uh, the most important center of Judaism outside of Jerusalem. This is where the rabbis gathered together to produce the Septuagint, or, or the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So that's Alexandria. That's where Apollos was from. Look how Luke fills out the rest of his biography. What a portrayal here by Luke. He says in verse 24 that Apollos was eloquent. He was a man of great words. He was a man who had an attractive vocabulary, convincing speech. He had an ability to persuade men through his skillful and convincing delivery, but Eloquence and, and, and lofty speech can only get you so far, right? There's a lot of folks in this world even today who are very gifted speakers. Many even within Christendom can move the needle. They can sway the masses. There's a lot of uh, preachers who can produce strong emotional reactions and responses from their hearers. They can draw large crowds. They can fill stadiums. They can get... Folks to come down front and pray a prayer and sign a card, ask Jesus into their heart. A lot of preachers out there can put butts in the seats, but the content of their message typically lacks substance. They lack anything of actual eternal significance or value. They send people away all buzzed up and all charged up emotionally excited about how to be a better person and how to prosper in this life, but there's nothing of actual substance in their words. There's no meat. There's no nourishment. There's no satisfaction in the soul. Not so with Apollos, though. Okay, Luke says in verse 24, he was competent in that which actually feeds a starving soul. He was competent in the scriptures. Much better translated, he was mighty in the scriptures. He was mighty in the scriptures. He was powerful. He was capable. He was dynamic in the scriptures. In that which matters most to the human soul. Many of you have heard of the famed evangelist D.L. Moody. Moody was very persuasive. He was very striking. He was very knowledgeable about the gospel, but he wasn't very polished. He wasn't very eloquent One time a woman came to him after the service and said, Mr. Moody, I noticed in your message that you made 18 grammatical mistakes. Can you imagine that? Moody said, ma'am, I'm using all the grammar I got for the Lord. What are you doing with yours? Now we have Moody Publishers, Moody Press, Moody Radio, Moody Bible Institute, proving that while he wasn't necessarily the most polished speaker, he knew where the true power really lie. The Word of God, the Gospel of God, which he faithfully proclaimed for the rest of his life here on earth. Luke says in verse 24 that Apollos had both power and eloquence. And some men do. And they they are gifts to the church. I can think of others that fit this description. Uh, Bunyan, uh, Knox, Spurgeon, Luther, Whitfield, Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones to name a few. Apollos was an eloquent man. And he had an extensive knowledge of the scriptures. Now, this is very important for us to know about Apollos. What scriptures are we talking about here? We're talking about the book of Acts? Talking about Romans? Colossians, Jude, Revelation. No, these were yet to be written. He was competent in the scriptures that were around Egypt uh, some 300 years before Christ walked the earth. He was competent in the Greek version of the Old Testament, which again came from his city. Uh, But he wasn't in Alexandria anymore. He was in Ephesus. Luke goes on to say that he was not only eloquent, not only was he mighty in the scriptures, but Verse 25 says he had also been instructed in the way of the Lord. In the way of the Lord. Now we're getting a little bit more personal here. He was instructed, which is actually the word uh, for catechism. He was catechized in the way of the Lord. 
And being fervent in spirit, what does that mean? Well, it means he was passionate. He was enthusiastic. Someone described it as a bubbling over with spiritual zeal. He wasn't boring. He wasn't apathetic. This wasn't a case of, as Lawson said, the bland leading the bland. He had energy. He had spunk. He was fired up because of the content of his message, namely the Lord. But then we have to ask, what Lord? Is he talking about the Lord of the Old Testament scriptures? Is he talking about Elohim, uh, the Lord, Creator God, or the relational Lord Jehovah, Yahweh? Or is he talking about the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, Luke does say in the last half of verse 25 that he spoke and taught accurately concerning the things of Jesus. So I'd venture to say this is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. However, in the very next words, Luke says that Apollos, as eloquent as he was, as mighty as he was, as catechized and capable as he was, was lacking something. He had only been baptized into John's baptism, leading many to believe that at this point in Ephesus, Apollos wasn't even a born-again believer. That, that it'd be better to place him in the category of Old Testament saint. But could this be true? Luke said he was teaching Jews about the way of the Lord. He says in verse 26, Apollos was speaking boldly in the synagogues. The, the destroyer just dominating folks, just imparting wisdom and knowledge and insight into the Old Testament prophecies, apparently concerning the Christ. But what was he saying about the Christ? What was he saying about Jesus exactly? In just a moment, we're going to be, read about 12 disciples. They were disciples of John. Uh, Apollos goes up to Corinth. While Paul comes back to Ephesus, he runs into these 12 guys and says to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they say, Holy Spirit? What in the world are you talking about? They didn't even know about the Holy Spirit, let alone possess him. Therefore, they weren't regenerated. They weren't born again, saved in the New Testament sense. They may have been justified by faith, but they weren't born again believers. They were just like John. John the Baptist, the baptizer. John was their guy. So when Paul asked, into what then were you baptized? They said, well, into John's baptism, of course. Well, what was John's baptism? Well, Paul tells us in chapter 19, verse 4. He said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who is to come after him. That is Jesus John's baptism was a water baptism signifying preparation for the one who was to come. John said, y'all better get ready. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight. The rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see, see the salvation of God. Get ready. He's coming. This one spoken of by Isaiah and Malachi and Ezekiel and Amos and Micah 700 years before, the one spoken of by Daniel and, and David and Samuel, even Moses himself, the long-awaited, highly-anticipated Messiah, the Christ of God, the Savior of Israel, is coming. So make way. What should we do, the people cried. He said, repent. Turn from your sins. Purify yourselves. He says, be selfless with people. Tax collectors, stop cheating people out of their money. Stop skimming off the top, exploiting your brethren. Soldiers, stop intimidating people, extorting money from them for your own gain. Knock it off. And be baptized, be immersed. Now, this would have been shocking to the Jews because Jews didn't do baptism. It wasn't common at all for Jews to be baptized. They had rites, they had ceremonial cleansings and washings, but to be baptized in this sense was something that was only done for Gentiles who converted to Judaism. 
So when Jews came to be baptized by John, they were actually symbolically and publicly lowering themselves down to the same level as a Gentile. It was a humbling. Basically saying, yeah, I haven't lived up to God's perfect standards for my life. I cannot live up to God's perfect standards for my life. I'm filthy. Spiritually speaking, I need to be cleansed by Yahweh and and will symbolically demonstrate this by my repentance and by a baptism in preparation for the one who is to come, the Holy One of God, the Christ, the King, the Lamb of God. In other words, excuse me, they came in faith and obedience to John's teaching. Okay, they were disciples of John. They were followers of John in matters related to the coming Christ and matters related to the one who was to come. But Paul says to these disciples in chapter 19, he says, the one who John was talking about, he did come. He came. He was here. He, He was born of a virgin. He walked the earth, he lived a perfect, sinless, spotless life, never sinning, either in thought, word, or deed, not once. Yet, it was, he was crucified by the Romans and the Jews. He was killed, just like he said he would be killed. But he was raised three days later, just like he said he would be raised. He ascended to the right hand of the Father on high, just like he said he would ascend. And it's from this position in heaven at the right hand of the Father from whence he would send his Holy Spirit to indwell or immerse or baptize those who belong to him, all who were called and chosen in him from before the foundation of the earth, all those who believe in his gospel, his death, his burial, his triumphant resurrection from the dead for sinners. He will give them his Holy Spirit just like he said he would. Meaning, in verses 3 and 4, the 12 disciples of John the Baptist were lacking the key distinctive or distinguishing mark of Christianity, which is the Holy Spirit. His indwelling presence is what sets true believers apart from everyone else in the world, every other religion in the world, even fake Christians. He did not indwell these men. They weren't born-again Christ followers, but they would be going to become Christ followers. Okay, more on them in a moment. In light of all this, let's go back to Apollos. Okay, back to the destroyer for a minute. Luke says in verse 25, he had been instructed or catechized in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus Though he knew only the baptism of John, he spoke and taught accurately concerning the things of Jesus. Now we have to ask then, what things are we talking about? That he came and he lived a perfect, sinless, spotless life, that he was delivered up to die, that he was killed, was buried, and rose again from the dead three days later, that he ascended to the right hand of the Father and sent his spirit to indwell those who are his, that he's coming back, that he will reign victorious from the throne of David in Jerusalem for a literal 1,000-year period before destroying the earth as we know it and taking all those who believe in him and have his spirit to live with him eternally in the new heavens and the new earth. Did he say all that? Negative. The initial arrival, the victories, the conquest, the reigning, the kingdom, yes. But the suffering... The dying, the resurrection, and subsequent Holy Spirit's indwelling, baptizing those who believe in his gospel? No. Now, there's varying opinions on this, okay? So I hesitate to be too dogmatic. Because frankly, Luke doesn't come right out and say it here. But it looks to me like Apollos was in the same condition as the 12 guys that Paul's about to come into contact with. He's in the same condition that John the Baptist was. John, who sent some of his disciples to to Jesus to ask him, are you the Christ? Like, I mean, are you him? You don't look like the Christ. 
You don't look like the Messiah we've all been looking for. Where's the kingdom? Where's the, the conquest, the conquering? Where's the freedom from the oppression of Rome? Where's your triumphant reign from David's throne, the restoration of all things, the times of refreshing spoken of by Joel and Amos and the others? You don't seem like the Christ. And he, he probably really felt this way when he ended up being imprisoned by Herod and had his head cut off. Uh, but what John didn't know was Jesus was setting people free from oppression. Physically, emotionally, and most importantly, he was setting them free from their spiritual oppression the, and, and enslavement to sin, their own sin nature, and the devil. When men had, We're getting to the tongues part in a minute here. Hold on once. <laughs> I just love a baby cry during a tongues sermon. And when men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. Apollos could have very well walked up to Jesus and said the same thing. Listen, I know all about the one to come. I know where he will be born. I know some of the things he'll do. I know what he'll accomplish for the nation and all true Israelites. And Jesus could very well say to him, but you don't know my ultimate purpose or the timetable that God has for me. You don't know what I will accomplish not only for Israel, but the whole world through my death, burial, and resurrection. Now, again, I can't be dogmatic about this, but... There are too many men who are much smarter than me with too many differing interpretations, but I believe Apollos hears and is saved by the power of the gospel for the first time in verse 26. Okay? Luke says in verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogues. Remember, he was eloquent, he was mighty, he was teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. He was bold, but he didn't have the full story. He wasn't preaching the full story, the full Christ. However, who came along to tell him the whole story? The faithful husband and wife team, Priscilla and Aquila, who were in the synagogue, faithful Jews, yet believers in Christ exercising their freedoms to partake in Jewish customs and traditions. They were there. They were listening and when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now again, I believe this is when Apollos was sealed with the Holy Spirit of God and regenerated. That's just my take, though. You guys study it for yourselves. Be good Bereans. We have to remember, Acts is a transitional book. Okay, It's, it's transitioning from Judaism to Christianity, from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. It's not like today, okay? There were actual Old Testament saints living and walking around. There's nobody who fits that description today. No Jews are justified by faith unless they believe in Christ. Uh, there were Old Testament believers who had not yet received the news that Messiah had come, nor did they grasp that the Messiah would come to suffer and die. This is a Almost a foreign concept to them. You mean our Savior is going to suffer and die? You're kidding me. Even the apostles were at various times confused when Jesus would speak about his being handed over to lawless men, handed over to crucified by the religious leaders. Peter says, yeah, that's not going to happen as long as I'm around, okay? You got a kingdom to usher in here. And me and James and John's, we're going to be right there with you. James and John, even after the resurrection in Acts chapter 1, they said, okay, is now the time that the kingdom will come? Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Like, are you going to do this or what? He says, you know what, that's none of your business. Just wait here for my spirit to come. He'll come, just like I said he would. And he did come, right, at Pentecost. But from the ascension until Pentecost, the apostles were in the same state as Apollos in chapter 18 and the 12 men in chapter 19. But as soon as Priscilla and Aquila come in 
and explain all of this and the true nature of Christ and the Holy Spirit, Apollos is saved and, and is now eloquent. He's mighty. He's fully accurate. He's fervent. He's passionate. He's bold. And most importantly, he's indwelled by and under the control of the very Holy Spirit of God himself, which makes him a force to be reckoned with. It makes him a force to be reckoned with within these synagogues, almost like a, a destroyer of Judaism. He's, he's the destroyer of reasoning and obstinance within rabbinical Judaism. And Luke pretty much sums this up in verse 27. He says, And when Apollos wished to cross to Achaia, cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him, wrote to the disciples to welcome him. He's the real deal. Welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Not only was he preaching the gospel, the full, true Christian gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation for all who would believe, but because he now knew the full story, he was now helping other believers grow in grace. You see that? Now he's coming alongside believers, telling them about the Lord. By grace, who by grace, don't forget that Luke says, who by God's grace had believed. Destroying Judaism. Destroying its system of justification by works or adherence to ceremonies, laws, certain days, food rights, faithfully uh, proclaiming and applying salvation by grace alone through faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Praise the Lord. Amen. 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 So that's Apollos. Okay. Two quick takeaways from chapter 18. We're going to close chapter 18 now. Number one, I don't want us to overlook the significance of the involvement of Aquila and Priscilla in this transformation, okay? This was a faithful team. This was a sincerely devoted husband and wife team who truly loved the Lord and his word. They loved the church. They loved the people of God. Paul even says they, they risked their necks for him at one point, their lives, so that he would be able to go on preaching and teaching and writing about the gospel of Christ and the Christian life, both here and in the one to come. They left their home. They left their city, their hometown. They left their business, all for the gospel. They loved the gospel. Above all, they loved Christ, who was the object of the gospel. <clears throat> they loved their Lord more than anything in this world, including each other, which is very important in a marriage. And they were committed to serving him no matter the cost. Now, by God's grace, I believe we have some couples here at Lakewood Bible Chapel who fit this description. I do. I believe the Lord has blessed us with husbands and wives and mothers and fathers who, who fit this description. They're loyal. They're devoted. They're zealous. They're faithful. They're eager to build up others and, and train up others and edify others. I believe we have many couples in this church who are faithful like Aquila and Priscilla, amen. And if you're a couple at Lakewood Bible Chapel here, here's a good model of what you can accomplish together if the Lord wills. For the singles here, I would just implore you while preparing yourselves for the possibility of marriage one day, men, look for a Priscilla, a, a woman who takes her faith seriously who is well-versed in the scriptures, uncompromising in the scriptures, who puts her God above all else, including the marriage. And women look for an Aquila, a man who clearly loved his wife, served his wife, co-labored with his wife, led his wife in a way that wasn't for his own gain or benefit, but to love and honor the Lord for his glory and his glory alone ready to answer his call no matter what, no matter what that might look like. We have to be faithful to the Lord. Look for an Aquila. The, this couple, they, they, they took this mighty, articulate, eloquent man aside and said, man, that's really something. 
That, that's really something. Thanks for the good word. Praise the Lord. But you know, there's a few things that you need to know about before you can continue preaching here in the synagogue, okay? Come on over here. And then the Lord used them to rock his world. Changed Apollos' life forever. As they filled him in on the whole gospel. The whole Lord Jesus Christ. His perfect life. His sacrificial death for sinners by grace. His burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and his coming again. And to his credit, Apollos was humble enough to listen to him, right? He could have said, man, I got these folks eating out of my hand. What are you going to give me instruction on? A couple of odd couple here. No, he didn't, he didn't do that. He took the advice. That's why I call him in the outline the docile destroyer. He, he was powerful, but he was humble. He was amiable. He's teachable. He, he opened the, himself up to their input, even, maybe even their criticism of him. This is lacking in our culture today. Folks don't like to be corrected. In this age of postmodernism, everyone has their own opinion or their own version of truth, and to question that truth sends people into a spiral of despair, if not seething anger at the thought of anyone having the audacity to challenge their worldview. Not Apollos, though, okay? He heard what Priscilla and Aquila were saying. Notice she was first in this. Uh, seemingly took the lead in this. He, he heard the word and believed it. He went on to be a, a mighty force for the gospel for years to come, okay? That's the 18th chapter of Acts. And what examples we have in the 18th chapter of Acts? We have uh, Priscilla, Aquila, Paul, Apollos, the destroyer, whom Luke says in verse 1 of chapter 19, now found his way to Corinth. Paul even mentions Apollos in his letters to Corinth multiple times. I planted, Apollos watered. God gave the growth, remember? Which is exactly what he's off to do here. He's going to water. He's going to water. He goes to Corinth where Paul just was, and Paul returns to Ephesus. Now, remember Paul's words. I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus, went to Caesarea, Jerusalem, Antioch, and then began his third missionary journey. Now, Luke says, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country, came to Ephesus. So is it safe to say this was in the Lord's will? Of course it was. That's why he's here. And when he comes into this city, remember this beautiful city, Luke writes that he comes across those 12 disciples. And as we've already read, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no. We have not even heard that there is a spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, and that is Jesus. Now this is interesting to me. Paul says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And that's a great question. Because he told the Romans in a later letter, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. That's a big deal, right? Uh, Do you have the Spirit of Christ? Do you have the Spirit of God dwelling on, on the inside of you? Are you sure? You better be sure. Paul says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, Holy Spirit? We don't even know what that means. Again, demonstrating these guys didn't have the full picture. But this is interesting to me. They can't say they've never heard of the Spirit at all. He's referenced throughout the entire Old Testament from the very first words of Genesis. Not to mention John the Baptist, the one whom they followed, said, after me comes one who is mightier than I. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with who? The Holy Spirit. So how could they say they had never heard of the Holy Spirit until now? Oh no, they've heard of the Holy Spirit. What they didn't know uh, about was the character of the Holy Spirit, the nature and the purpose of the Holy Spirit, his person. 
his purpose, his role to regenerate, to indwell, to cause them to believe, to give faith that is necessary for salvation, to work in and keep, to secure, to seal permanently until those who belong to him are taken to glory. He will seal them and keep them. So as John Stott says, in a word, they were still living in the Old Testament, which culminated with John the Baptist. They understood neither the new a- that the new age had been ushered in by Jesus, nor that those who believe in him and are baptized into him receive the distinctive blessing of the new age and the indwelling spirit. These guys didn't know the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul told them. And they had hearts that were prepared to receive what he was telling them, right? They were prepared. So again, I don't believe these men were Christians up to verse 4. They were just like Apollos. They didn't have the whole story until Paul told them who Jesus was and who the Spirit was, the Holy Spirit who then regenerated them, enabling them to believe and be saved. And this is a salvation they would never lose because it was a salvation granted unto them by God himself who gives his spirit as a pledge, as a guarantee. Now I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, as with almost anything, there are some who twist this section of scripture and try to read into Paul's question something that isn't there. Namely, through an erroneous translation of the question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Some translations read, did you receive the Holy Spirit since you believed? In other words, they would say, these guys were already believers in the Lord Jesus Christ when Paul approached them, but they hadn't yet received the special blessing or the second blessing or the special anointing, which of course these folks would be willing to, they would be thrilled to tell you how to obtain if you just do everything that they tell you to do whatever they manipulate you into doing. According to their logic, Paul, in effect, would be saying, Paul would be saying, in effect, you have faith, okay? You are saved, and that's great. But you're missing out here. If you could just have super-duper faith, if you could just be a little bit more spiritual, it will get you over that threshold so you can really enjoy the benefits of the Holy Spirit. Like, like there's another level of spirituality that the mere common, pitiable, regular believer hasn't yet attained. Like there's a second stage of the Holy Spirit. Like you get a part of the Holy Spirit now, and then you get a part of him uh, or more of him later, depending on what you do or what you don't do. But that's all Pentecostal and charismatic nonsense. So don't believe it. Don't be fooled by it, as many are. True believers receive the Holy Spirit, all of him, at one time. They can't divide him. They can never lose him. And though he may gift us in different ways and use us in different ways and even fill us or control us to accomplish his purposes on certain occasions, there are no levels of Christianity. Okay? There are no super Christians walking around out there or highly spiritual Christians, or anointed Christians separated from normal Christians. Even Apollos and Paul, right? He, he would go on to tell folks in Corinth, why are you some, some of you saying that you've been, you are of Apollos or Paul? Did I die for your sins? Were you baptized into my name? Is Christ divided? Answer, No. And neither is the Holy Spirit. Later he'd say, what is Apollos? We're servants. That's what we are. We're servants. We're all saved by and indwelled by the same Spirit of the same Christ who died for us. He did the work, not us. Which is why there's only two categories of people walking around in this world. Only two. There are no super believers. There are just true believers and non-believers. That's it. Only two. Which one are you? These 12 men uh, were now, by verse 5, true believers, but they weren't before. They were sovereignly regenerated in that little space between verses 4 and 5. 
They were now, just like those at Pentecost, baptized by the Holy Spirit of God, permanently indwelled by the Spirit of God, made alive together with Christ. This is then demonstrated by their participation in water baptism, which is symbolic. It does not save you. It's a symbolic public declaration of their inward transformation, of their identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and their new life in him. And by Luke's comment in verse 6, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, we have uh, verse 6, and when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came. They began speaking in tongues. Where'd she go? And prophesying. As Lewis Johnson said in a sermon on this passage, obviously what took place here was designed to convince the people in Ephesus that the Lord God was really with this new movement. The new covenant was legit. I added that. That's not S. Lewis Johnson. Uh, It had been confirmed. But Lewis Johnson said, quote, tongues and biblical speaking in tongues, of course, is not ecstatic speech or gibberish. I, when we preached on in Pentecost a while ago, I was preaching on the tongues. And you remember Ellie? Was it Ellie who started screaming and saying all, she was really angry? And I said, Brooke, that was the perfect moment for her to scream. I said, did you pinch her on the leg there? I didn't prearrange a pinch so that she sounded like she was speaking in tongues is what I'm saying. Speaking in tongues was a known language. This is Lewis Johnson again. Uh, Speaking in tongues was speaking in a known language which one had not studied. These were actual languages, but they just didn't know. Prophecy was the gift of communicating newly revealed truth. So this is something that happened in order to convince all that the Lord was with this movement of which the apostle was the leader. He said tongues were signs to the Jews that God was with this new messianic movement, and here they were exercised for the last time in the New Testament as a token of the fact that God is with this new movement, end quote. In other words, this divine display of tongues and prophecy was merely a sign manifestation which the Lord used in those times to verify both the message that was being proclaimed and that the Spirit had indeed come. We saw it at Pentecost, right? We saw it in Caesarea. And we see it here, right? But where else do we see it? This sign manifestation of tongues after men and women had begun or become born again. Answer, nowhere. Nowhere. We see an allusion to it in that same rebuke-filled letter from Paul to the Corinthians, but that was instruction to a people who were abusing and misusing the gifts. They, they were misrepresenting the person and the work of the Holy Spirit of God in the process, just like they do today. Other than that, we don't hear anything about tongues the whole rest of the way. Nor do we hear that these men actually possessed the gift of speaking in tongues, in known, unlearned language, or prophecy. But more on that next week and other spiritual, uh, supernatural occurrences. We're going to get into a little demonology. That'll be fun. But the application for today is clear, okay? Have you had the way of God explained to you more accurately? The true biblical gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and the Lord Jesus Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. And if so, have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you believed? Have you believed the gospel? And you say, well, I don't know. How would I know that? Well, I'll tell you this. It's not by strange, extraordinary manifestations, ecstatic speech or erratic speech and behavior. In fact, that would cause me to question exactly whose spirit you have on the inside of you. But I tell you, it's probably not holy. It's not by your Christian upbringing. It's not because you're here at church this morning. It's not because your grandparents or your your parents believed. It's not through your Bible knowledge or your ability to accurately communicate biblical truths. It's not through your baptism, your water baptism or church participation. It's not through your giving. It's not through living a good Christian life according to American Christian standards. It's not through your creed or your confession. It's not through the theologians or preachers you follow 
not by anything you do. It's by what's been done for you. It's by faith alone in Christ alone, a faith given to us by Christ alone. And Paul tells us what this looks like, to have the Spirit of Christ dwell in you, okay? He says we will live lives marked by love. True love, not the world's kind of love. And joy, true joy, not the world's kind of joy. And peace, a peace that surpasses all understanding because we know we, be- we belong to him. We are secure in Christ our Lord and we will see him face to face. Be a life filled with patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, Paul says, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desire, meaning there will be a heart change. There will be a heart change. There will be true repentance, a true turning from sin because you know that it grieves your Lord. A, a true turning from that which lays in, contra- lying, lies in contradiction to our new nature, a, a new nature that hates what he hates, loves what he loves, a new nature that loves God, loves his word, loves the people of God, just like Aquila and Priscilla, just like Apollos, just like Paul himself. That's how you know if you're one of his. Are you one of his this morning, my friends? Do you belong to him? Have you truly believed on the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation and reconciliation to the Father? I plead with you, if you never have, to trust in the Lord Jesus today. He will forgive you of your sin. He will wash you as white as snow, and he will present you holy and blameless before the Father through no doing of your own, but by his grace alone. I implore you to do so today. Amen? Amen. Amen. Now we'll have Peter and the music team come up and lead us in musical worship. We'll be dismissed. Pray with me now. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace alone, uh, your gospel of grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. We thank you that in your sovereign mercy, in your sovereign will, you have chosen to reveal these truths to us even today, together, that we got to hear truths that will have an eternal impact on our souls. We thank you for this privilege. I pray for anyone here today who does not know you. I pray that if it be your will, Lord, that you would save them by your grace alone, that they would ask the right questions, they would talk to the right people, that you would bring into their lives an Aquila and Priscilla to instruct them in your ways more accurately. And I I pray that you would save them by your grace because... You are worthy of their praise as well as ours. But it's a joy to give it to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.